Go ahead and grab your seat. Well, good morning, church. I hope it's good for you to be here this morning to gather with God's people. Now, this is a new microphone, so we're going to play with it a little bit. If I'm a little loud or a little quiet, we're figuring it out. Hopefully it doesn't fall off my face like so many of them are prone to do. Um, but we're trying to, trying to make sure we can be heard well here this morning. Um, just encourage you with next week as we this is Advent season. I hope some of you are doing Advent in your home, in your own heart, with your children. Uh, just rejoicing in the birth of the Savior. Next week and the following Sunday, we'll be preaching and worshiping in that line exclusively on the on the, the birth of the Messiah. Right, we're in that time of waiting for the coming of Christ. Right, but we rejoice in when He already came and what He accomplished. And so we're looking forward to the next few Sundays um, as we just delight in our our Savior who has come come for us. That should be a good time in the Word of God. If you have a Bible this morning, let's go to to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Oh, thank you, brother. Uh, And Psalm 119 is where we've been for the past five weeks. It's where we'll be uh, in and out of for the the next six months, Uh, because we believe God's Word is worth studying and worth knowing. We want to dive in and dive deep into the Word of God. Um, I love what many theologians have said over the years. God's Word is shallow enough for a baby to wade into and deep enough for theologians to get lost in. Right. So we just some of us are at different levels there. uh, But God forbid we stay at the infant level. Right. We want to dive into the word. And so we want the word to be clear and comprehensive, comprehensible. We want to be transformed by it. But we also don't just want to dip our toe in and say, oh, we've done enough. Right. We want to say, oh, Lord, teach me more. And God is that one that as we explore him, it's like, wow. There's more and there's more. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time and you've read the word of God, maybe let's say you've read your Bible one time through and you read it again and you're like, wow, I missed that. And I missed it again. And I missed it again. Right. And we just keep going back to God's word. And it's like, wow, Lord, you are amazing. Um, And that's what we're finding over and over in Psalm 119. Question for you as we begin this morning. Have you ever felt totally inept? Like a circumstance in life that hits you and you just feel clueless. Like you could not be more ill-equipped for the task at hand. Um, maybe it was a, a boss who just walked into your office or your cubicle and was like, hey, can you do this? And of course you say yes. But you're like, I have no idea. So you're like, Google, hope you can help me out, right? And you just start figuring out how do I create a spreadsheet because I'm clueless. I've never used that program before, but I'm sure I can master it in 10 minutes. Um, or maybe for you, it was like a big life change. It was a career change. Or maybe you got married or had kids and you're like, uh, I'm clueless. Like, I literally feel like I have no idea what to do next. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm actually dumb enough that I actually tackle things that I don't know that I don't know. And so then I get into something and then I get halfway through it and realize I have no idea what I'm doing. So Caitlin can testify to many projects in our home that I'm like, it, it can't be that hard. And then like three months later, it's like it was that hard, you know, and uh, and, and I have to really I, I'll, it'll happen here and I'll call you if you have that expertise and say, hey, can you come help me? Like I tore this wall apart and now I'm stuck, you know, and I have no idea what to do next. Uh, this morning, God's word presents us once again with the reality of total ineptness, like just absolute cluelessness. And we don't like to hear that. Um, we like to be self, uh, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and God's word kind of just kind of whacks at us a little bit, and we're like, oh, I don't, like, I don't like that. But I think we'll see from God's word, it's actually a sweet place to be. Because when we get to the spot of realizing who we really are before that good, good father that we just sang about, then we're ready to receive the grace that he promises to give. All right, so we are, we are inept. And the problem is the lies of our flesh are loud, right? The lies that scream at us that we don't need anybody's help. Um, the lies that we know, is, we know best. This text actually confronts the predisposition of our hearts to sin. We are predisposed to sin. You're not taught how to. You're not shown how to. It's what naturally just flows out of you, your predisposition to sin. We cannot and we will not pursue God on our own. And so we need him. We desperately need this God. So let's go to our Bibles again with Psalm 119, 33 to 40. 
Let's read these verses and let's, let's explore what God has for us this morning. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to illumine our hearts this morning to see and know you better. Father, we are distracted this morning without question. Distractions of life, of pressures, of trials, of struggles, of just the pride of our own hearts. We, don't, we come here and, and we have a million different things pulling at our attention. And I do believe that when we open your word, the enemy of God is even more active to distract us. And so, Father, we ask that you would do awesome things right now, that your word would, would speak to our souls, that we would come away from this time transformed by the truth of your scriptures, because it's in it that we find you. And so, Father, would you please work? Would you help me to not make anything more complicated or unclear? Would your word speak loudly and clearly this morning in this place? We plead with you, and in Christ's name, amen. So when I was reading, you may have wondered, if you've been here for the last five or six weeks, have we already done this? This sounds familiar. Well, the point is that Psalm 119 is, is wonderfully repetitive. It's just, like I've said over and over, it's the one-string guitar. I almost asked Phil this morning, when I was reading that, or after that, just to play one note on the guitar for a minute straight. Because that's kind of what we're getting at. It's like, dung, dung, dung. And you're like, I get it. I think I've read this before. I think I've heard this before. And the point of it is that God is so committed that we need it. That I'm going to go over and over and over again. And so there's parts this morning we're going to hit at a little higher level because we've already covered them in greater depth. And there's parts in these eight verses we're going to dive in a little deeper because they're new. We haven't seen anything like it yet, all right? But this, this one-string guitar of you need God's word is the repetition of Psalm 119, right? You need God's word to know God, to be transformed into his image. And that's just replete throughout this great chapter. So the first thing we see is actually at the beginning and end of this section. And I'm gonna call it the goodness of learning from God. The goodness of learning from God. Um, in verse 33 to 35, we have these three requests again. Have you seen, did you notice them? Teach me, O Lord. Give me understanding. Lead me in your path. Now, remember how Psalm 119 is broken into eight verse chunks? Remember that? Your Bible may, have, may do that for you, all right? So this chunk is, in, if you correspond to the English alphabet, it begins with the letter H, all right? Now, the letter H in Hebrew is kind of a strange letter, um, but it's the letter that precedes commands, all right, if you, if you conjugate verbs, all right, if that makes sense to you, all right, if you, you put that letter in front and all of a sudden you've got a command. So if you'll notice in your Bible, almost all the verses start with commanding requests. Teach me, give me, lead me. So he's writing in this acrostic. All these verses start with the exact same Hebrew letter, the H, and you'll notice that it's seven imperative seven commands where he's saying God do this God do this and this stanza is is just the stanza of dependence the stanza of Lord I desperately need you and he's going to say it over and over and over in many different ways communicating that I need God and here we see that there's this cry to know God and the cry to follow after God and that's those first three verses those first three verses teach me Oh Lord, give me understanding and lead me in your path. Let's break that down a little bit together. You see, before we'll ever run to God, begging for God to teach us, we must first come to grips with the reality that we can't know him apart from him. 
This isn't some class where you just take a test on knowing God and you pass with an A and I pass with a C and so you know God better. That's not how Christianity works. It's not just, oh yeah, I have this huge reservoir of biblical knowledge, therefore I know God. How many of us have great knowledge about God but we're absolute failures to live for him? Right, that's the whole point, that we'd live for him. So we can recite things, we can tell, oh yeah, I know that. Or you maybe, maybe, let's say, not in this room, but you know people where it's like, I grew up in church, I did all the right things, and they can spit out all the right answers, but their hearts are far from him. So here the point is, is that we can't know him, we can't live for him, unless we really come to grips with the reality that we need him. And that's where we see this, this author of sacred scripture admitting I need you. God, I can't know you apart from you. Please teach me. Please make me understand. So these first two requests is that God would be more fully known. And I love this because he runs to God himself and he says, God, teach me. Let me ask you a question. Is there a better teacher than God? And isn't it cool that God condescends to teach us? He's not like snubbing his nose and saying, you're a loser. Go find somebody else. No way. He's this good father who says, run to me. I want to reveal myself to you. Come to me and I will do it. And so the psalmist runs to God and says, God, teach me. Teach me, O Lord, the way and I'll keep it. And then give me understanding. Give me, give me understanding is that this idea of wisdom. Wisdom is truly understanding and living out truth for the glory of God. That's wisdom. Understanding, living out truth for the glory of God. That's where I think we go from knowledge to wisdom. You know that wisdom is not learning from your mistakes? Fools learn from their mistakes, right? That burned, don't do it again. Wisdom is actually reading your Bible and saying, God's right. God's right, and I'm not going down that road. God's word is true. And wisdom says, not just do I know it intellectually, but I'm going to live it out for the glory of God. So I read the Bible, I believe it, and God makes me wise. Because right? any old fool, self-included, can walk down the road of pain and suffering and say, that hurt, I don't want to do that again. Right? But wisdom is, I believe God, and I take him at his word. Give me understanding. And then verse 35, lead me in the path. Again, we get to this idea that we've said over and over, the psalmist is not after knowledge, just for knowledge's sake. He wants to walk with God. This is, the, this is the rub of Christianity. You see, everybody wants a God who loves them, right? I mean, that's just American Christianity has mastered a God who loves you. Nobody wants to submit their life to God's way. Like, that's the, that's the rub. One professor of mine said, nobody ever rejects God on intellectual grounds alone. It's always moral grounds. Nobody ever says, I don't believe because I'm smarter than God. At the end of the day, I don't believe because I don't want to submit to his way. And his way rubs against my self-authority, my self-autonomy. And so then, in order to get away with it, I say, well, I just don't believe that anymore. Well, it was actually your heart wanted its own way. So then you just said, I don't believe to get away with your sin. Are you, are you tracking with me? So here this morning, the psalmist isn't saying, God, make me smarter so that I just know you. It's like, God, it's good to walk in your path. And this word for path is, is very seldomly used in the Hebrew Bible, actually. And it's, it's not the normal word. It's the idea of a well-trodden path that's been walked over and over and over. So it's like there's this path that is just beaten down. God, make me walk in that well-trodden path. Because when I'm on that path, it's obvious and clear and good. The waved is paved before me. Lead me in the path. I want to live for, this, for the glory of God. You know, you'll never want to, you'll never desire, you'll never desire that path if you don't know God. So that's why he starts with, teach me God, I want to know you. But he immediately transitions to, God, lead me. Now let me be clear, when he begs God to lead him, this is not like, not like a, the, uh, like a ring in a bull's snout. You tracking with me? Okay, he's not just like, all right, God, put a ring to my nose and pull me along. It's not a coerced against my will pulling. So some people have said, let go and let God. Ever heard that? 
heresy. Don't believe it. Okay, that will lead you down a terrible path. There's nothing in scripture that says let go and let God. If you want to talk about it afterwards, I can tell you where it came from. It's not the Bible. Okay, that's bad thinking. We don't let go and let God. We run to God and we beg God to lead us. So the Christian life is one of diligence, not passivity. The road of sanctification is not sit back in my lounge chair and just trust God to do something awesome. Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. So it is a race that we're running, and while we're running that race, we're saying, God, it's not by me, it's by you. I need your help, I need your grace. God, teach me. So apart from his enabling grace, we can't do it. But it doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing, trusting that he will overcome your laziness and slothfulness. So God, teach me. And look at what he says. We've seen it over and over. And I will keep it to the end. I will observe it with my whole heart. Statements of total devotion to God. There is no such thing as casual Christianity. So maybe this morning you're believing the lie that, well, that guy over there, he's like super serious about God. I'm just not there yet. Ever, ever been guilty of that? Maybe. See, the problem is that, that doesn't exist in the Bible. In the Bible, you either, are, you either know God, love God, walk with God, or you don't know God, don't love God, don't walk with God. There's not a middle in between of like, well, I'm just this casual, carnal Christian that one day I'll get serious. That's, that's actually called unbelief, and you don't know Jesus. So, so here, it's, it's if, you, if, you, if I know you, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to observe it with all my heart and keep it to the end. There is no casual commitment, church. And I know that that's, that's, that's hard for us to hear because maybe you're this morning thinking, I mean, life is, fu- life is full, life is hard. One day I'm going to get serious about God. I mean, come on, Pastor Justin, I'm here on Sunday morning. Isn't that good? Yes, it is. Praise God. But we've got to be clear with God's word. And I wouldn't want to lie to you this morning and say that there is this special category of Christian called casual Christian or carnal Christian because it's not found in the Bible. And so the psalmist here is clear. I love you, lead me. I love you, teach me. And as you do that, oh, I'll be faithful to the end. Goal of Christian walk is always radical obedience. Matthew 6 kind of stuff. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. That's not just for the Christian elite. That's for the Christians everywhere, right? Radical obedience, total submission, like total in everything. Not just like, well, God, you can have all the, all the rooms of my life except that one. You can't touch over there. How did Jesus deal with the rich man who wanted to find eternal life? What do you say? Go and sell all you have. Why? Because poverty is the way to heaven? No, because that was the one thing he wouldn't give up. So he said, hey, I'll follow you, but you're not touching my stuff. And Jesus said, then, you're de- then depart from me. Because you can't follow me and, and have one area of your life that, you, that I can't have. Because that's radical obedience, total submission, absolute devotion. You know, it's interesting. Jesus loved us to the end, and we're called to love him to the end of our lives. Right? He loved unto the end, and so must we with total submission to him. So here we see that there's the goodness of learning from God, this longing to know and follow. Not just know, church, know and follow. It is so much easier just to know. But when the rubber meets the road and you want to run after your sin, what you know, if you're truly in Christ, will translate, translate into follow, and you'll follow him. So we must follow him. It's interesting, he goes in verse 38. We're gonna skip a few verses and come back to the middle, okay? So we're gonna go from 35 to 38. Here we see the cry to experientially know. So there's a cry to know, and he follows it up with an experiential knowledge that he longs for in verse 38. So we need to look at this together. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. What is he talking about? Well, first off, what is he not talking about? The Christian faith, our faith, is not based on experience. We've said that over and over. But, but, the Christian faith is deeply experiential. Do you see the difference? And some of you are like, uh, amen, preach that, brother. Yeah, experience. I'm all about my experience with God. 
Then some of you are like, uh, you going crazy Pentecostal on us, Pastor? Are you like getting into experiential theology? Because I don't know if I agree with that. No, actually, I'm not on either extreme, I hope, by God's grace. He simply says, confirm your promise. So let's look at what the verse actually says, because he's, actually, he's asking for an experiential faith. But how is he asking? He says, God, be faithful to the revealed promises in your word. I want you to confirm what? What does he say? Your promise. What promises? All the ones we've talked about already in Psalm 119. The promises for life and strength and happiness and joy and delight. God, do all of that. Confirm it. Make it a reality in my life. Help me to see it. This is not some outlandish, outlandish sign he's asking God for. Like, God, do something crazy so that I'll believe in you. Have you ever heard the crazy stories of people asking God for signs? You know, one dear brother just knew it was God's will to marry a certain girl because he found a sand dollar at the beach. Like, bro, don't hang your future on a sand dollar. Okay, you could have just had a lucky day and found a sand dollar. But how have we been guilty of the same thing? Let me just, just fill in the blank. I know this is God's will because what comes out of your mouth? If it's not something that came out of this book, then you better be real careful of what to believe. You, you following me? So God works in experiences. Praise him for it. We should look for him in the little things of life. Like, man, he met my needs. I was broke and like, I don't know what happened. God brought this in and praise God. Hallelujah, we'll rejoice. Or man, this happened and I just know the Lord was in it. We should give him the glory for all those things. But our faith is on him being true to his promises. Not some random experience that we chalk up to God. And we say, well, I'm a Christian because, man, back in the day, God did this. You're like, really? Nothing to do with the Bible? Nothing to do with his truth from his word? Maybe you should read your Bible more and see what God actually says in this book. So David says, confirm your promises. So the Christian faith is full of experiences rooted in scripture and that align with scripture. Let me say that again. The Christian faith is full of experiences that are rooted in this book and that align with this book. And brothers and sisters, if you have an experience that does not align with this book, then you need to ask it from the God of this book. Because there's a lot of experiences in this world that I don't know where they come from, but they're not from the God of this book. Because when I read my Bible, it doesn't match up with your experience. And so when I hear stories even of supposed Christianity, and it's like, oh my goodness, that actually disagrees with clear statements of scripture. I can't buy it that it's from God because it disagrees with this book. But brothers and sisters, there are a myriad of experiences that confirm this book. And that's what he says. Confirm your promises to your servant. It's interesting. Know what he says, your servant. We've seen that word before. It's the slave language that's all throughout this book. I am your bondservant, your slave. You are my master. So he's not saying, God, give me an experience so that I believe. He's saying, give me an experience based on your word because I believe in you already. I firmly am committed to you. Confirm your word. Do what you've promised. So you're low this week. You're just, you're running life. Lord, give me strength this week. I am so low. I don't know where else to turn. Would you confirm your promises to your servant because I need you? That's, that's what he's praying. Lord, I... My joy meter is like below zero. Like, I just don't, I don't know where to turn for joy. Life is worse than I could ever have imagined right now. Would you confirm your promises and give me joy in the Lord? Because I'm just having a hard time with it today. Or this week, or this year, or this decade. Confirm your promises to your servant. Are you tracking with that? That's that's the point of this. An experience based on scripture that does not make you a child of God. It simply says, I am yours. I'm committed to you. Absolutely. Do your work. Be faithful to your word. And we cry out because we believe. Not so that we'll have some mystic experience that makes us believe. And look at what he says. That you may be feared. This is an interesting statement and 
men and women, we've got to wrestle with it because we're in a society today that it ignores the fear of the Lord. How many of you have heard this statement? The God of the Old Testament was a God of law and wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. How many have heard that? Okay, that's, that's again, that's heresy because that means God changes and God never changes. So if you believe that, then, then that's been false doctrine and needs to be rooted out of your thinking because God does not change. You want to, just real quick side note, you know why I think we believe that? In the Old Testament, we see God killing nations because of their sin. And that hurts us as humanity. We don't like that. In the New Testament, we see God killing his son because of our sin. We're okay with that. Both are, both are horrific, right? So we should say, wow, God's a God of wrath. He hates sin everywhere. Just in the Old Testament, he killed nations. In the New Testament, he killed God. You tracking? That's the difference. He is a God to be feared, not a God to be played with. Now, what does the fear of God mean? Because it is not a, oh my goodness, God's gonna strike me dead fear. Here's what it means. Their fear of God is a, two, a two-pointed meaning, a two-edged sword, if you will, believing there's safety and security in obeying God. You fear him and that God, you're right. I know you're right. I know that if I go my way, I'm wrong. There's safety and security and blessing in walking with you. That's the first edge of the sword of fearing God. The second edge though is believing that there's peril for rejecting God and going your own way. It's not a terror of God. Like, oh my goodness, if I step out of line, the heavenly baseball bat's gonna knock me in the head. It is a reality that God, I fear you. Meaning I know that you're, if I follow you, your way is good. If I depart from you, there's peril and dread. And I don't want that for my life. So I fear you. There is goodness in fearing God. So here he says, God, do your work, confirm your promises, and you will be feared. When God is feared, God is worshiped. God is worshiped when he's feared. Awe is ascribed to him. This is important. Affection alone does not produce worship. Okay? I love a lot of things that I don't worship. But when I'm, when there is this awe, like, like the word awful is actually, it was awe-inspiring, full of awe. When I'm amazed at something that's grander than me, when I live in a little bit of dread and fear of that awesome thing, there's worship ascribed. There is worth given to God. That's the word worship. Worth to his name because of who he is. So here he says, God, when you show up and do your work, your people will fear you, which is they will worship you. They will adore you. They will Stand in awe of you. May we be a church that stands in awe of God. He is our friend that's closer than a brother. Amen. He is the lover of our souls. Amen. But do you believe that that God who is your friend and the lover of your soul is one to be feared? Because that's what draws you near to him. You see, because God is so unlike you, and we fear him, it makes his grace that much more amazing. When we ignore the fact that he is a God to be feared, we can kind of think, oh, well, big deal. Of course he loves me. When we recognize who he is and we have a, a healthy fear of God, it makes his grace overwhelmingly awesome. Because now it's like, you should, you should condemn me, but you don't. And so I adore you. So we run to him to know him, even to be true to his promises, and we fear him. And just real quick, we've seen this over and over. Look at what he says. There's, there's delight in this in verse 35. Lead me and I delight in you. In verse 39, your rules are good. God's path is so good. That's the point of Psalm 119. God, your path is good. It's good for me. And the lie of sin is sin is better. Sin is more satisfying. Sin is more joy producing. Sin will make me happier in the long run. Isn't that why we do it? Like we sin because we think I'm actually going to be better off in five minutes, 10 minutes, next month, next year. I'll be better off. I'll be happier if I go down the path of sin. And the truth is that God's plan is good and it's always good. Do we believe that this morning as a church? In our lives, we believe that when I'm tempted to go after my way, to say, well, time out. God's plan is good. No, I'm not gonna believe the lie. God's path is a good path. And whatever this world is selling me, whatever my flesh desires, no, I'm not gonna go down it. 
because God is good. And his path for my life is a good path. And so here it's interesting that he says in verse 39, your rules are good because you see whatever we think is good will delight in. So some of you here have very strange hobbies. Or we could, I mean, nobody wants to admit it, but if we went around this room, like who has the most peculiar hobby? We'd come up with some weird stuff. You know, I had a friend, uh, still is a friend. Um, she was into, I think it was Scottish Highland dancing. I didn't even know it existed. It's like where they wear kilts and they do these jumps and leg kick things. And it's not the typical Irish, it's Scottish Highland and it's very unique. And I learned about it and it was fascinating, but I literally was like, I've never heard of this. And there are a whole groups of people that that's what they do and love, right? And you know exactly what I'm talking about because some of you do the same thing. You've got something that, and to you is a big deal and everybody else in the world, it doesn't matter at all. But because you esteem it as good, you delight in it, you value it. And here we see him saying, God, your rules, your way, your path is good. And therefore, I delight in it. So sometimes I think the problem is that we actually don't esteem his way as good. We see everything else as good. We've so bought the lie. We've so drunk the Kool-Aid, if you will, of sin that we can't even see God's way as good anymore. And so when God brings his word to the table, we're like, oh, I don't think so. And just let me tell you, God's not the one who's wrong there. So we must believe his word is good and we will delight in it. Now, the, the theme of this morning, I think I neglected to say it at the beginning, is we're not righteous and we desperately need a God who is. The first thing we see here that in our lack of righteousness, we need him. So we run to him to know him. Secondly here, we're going to see, and this is kind of the, the, the main emphasis of this morning, if you will, the necessity of embracing, embracing your brokenness. The necessity of embracing your brokenness. We're not righteous. God is. We must embrace brokenness. You see, Christianity... If I could sum it up in a, in a real succinct form, is broken people who need a good God to redeem them and reconcile them to himself. That's it. And it's real simple. And if you look at every other faith system in the world, ev- I mean, literally every other one, and I, I've not found any exceptions yet, and maybe if you do, come tell me, we can talk about it. Every faith system in the world says, do good, be better, whatever that looks like in that system, and, and if you do enough, you'll achieve pleasure or uh, acceptance before that deity, whatever that deity is. I don't care, if, I don't care what system you name. It's all, it all boils down to the same, right? Basically good people doing basically good things, trying to earn the acceptance of some divine being. Christianity comes in and says, actually, sorry, you're broken. You're entirely broken. You do nothing righteous, not one, any of you. And you have a God who's perfect, not mostly good, but absolutely perfect, who should condemn you for your sin, but guess what? He's chosen to love you instead. And not only does he love you, but he sent his son to die in your place when you deserve to die so that you can be freed from the death that you deserve and be restored, redeemed, reconciled, and forgiven for all eternity. That's an amazing message. But you see, at the core of it is we're broken. No, no other religious system says this because this is the only one that came from God. Everything else came from man, and so I like to think higher of myself and like to think less of God. But scripture actually says, God's up here, you're not, and you're broken. And brothers and sisters, we must embrace the fact for the rest of our lives that we're broken, because the moment we forget that, we will neglect the grace of God, we'll ignore the gospel, we'll think we're okay apart from God and his grace, and we're not. So let's look at what Psalm 119, 36 and 37 says about us. We're broken. First thing we see, Verse 36, the first line, incline my heart to your testimonies. So I think it's fairly easy to conclude here that my natural inclination is to go my own way. Why would I ask God to incline my heart towards him unless my natural inclination was to run? The word here of, uh, or the the idea here is, uh, I'm sorry, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimony, is not to selfish gain. Selfish gain here is any pursuit that is not done for the glory of God and good of others, which characterizes most of my life. How about yours? Selfish pursuits. I mean, I'm meditating on this this week, and I'm just like, oh my word. This is, this is all over my life. Selfish gain. Just what will make Justin happy? At the end of the day, I want to be happy. How about you? 
And so I pursue selfish gain. Like whether it's in my sleeping habits, my eating habits, my time habits, I am really good at selfish gain. Because it's where my heart naturally goes. And so it'd be good for us all to take a little inventory. What's the selfish gain of your heart? Let's be honest enough to say, yeah, that's selfish gain, that's selfish gain, that's selfish gain. And you might be like, wow, that's painful. That hurts all of my life, needs to change. Praise God. All right, let's start changing for the glory of God. Because when we look at things like this, man, you're going to get an entertainment. Selfish, so much of it, selfish gain. External beauty. A good gift of God that becomes selfish gain because it's what our world worships. Control. Man, I love control. Anybody else a control freak? All right, the rest of you are lying. All right. We love being in control. I don't get control. Man, I get angry. My selfish gain kicks in. I'm covetous. My car works great. And then I pulled up next to a stoplight by this guy that had a sweet new ride. And I was just like, my car stinks. Right? Instantaneous covetousness, right? Selfish gain comes to the surface. And we could keep going on and on and on. My natural inclination is to go the wrong way. Look what he says in 37. Not only is it selfish gain, he says, turn my eyes from worthless things. Man, he just like steps on you and then grinds you into the ground a little more. He's like, so you pursue selfish things? Oh, by the way, those selfish things are worthless. Utterly worthless. An elaboration on selfish gain, selfish gain, the word worthless literally means vanity. Just total vain pursuits. It, means, it actually means nothingness. That's, you pursue nothingness. I pursue nothingness. Then it's actually, it also means falseness. Something that just, it has the lie of pretty, the glitz, and just nothing false, and it concludes with emptiness. Total emptiness. I thought that's a great definition of so much of what captures my time and attention. Worthless things. Just straight up worthless things. And are we ready to admit this morning that, Lord, that's me. I pursue selfish gain. And I pursue worthless things. Now, as a child of God this morning, if you're here as a Christian, by God's grace, Lord willing, that's happening less and less. That should be the case. If you're, if you're a Christian this morning, we should be growing and in, in pursuing God more and more and these selfish things less and less. But it's still a reality of life. And don't ever believe the lie that you're going to reach a perfectionism in this life. You always need Jesus. You always need grace. You're never beyond that reach. But maybe this morning you're not a Christian. You're just exploring faith. Let me just share with you that I'm not saying this to you, that you're worse than me. We're all here. The gospel levels the playing field. We all pursue worthless things. We all pursue selfish gain. And that's where Jesus steps in. And we're going to see that actually at the very end of this sermon this morning, that he gives righteousness to the unrighteous. Because all of these things we pursue make us vastly unrighteous before a holy God. And so this morning, the text of scripture just kind of lays us low and says we're broken. We pursue worthless things. We pursue selfish gain. And let's see what he asked God to do back in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Here we, the literal translation is God, bend my heart heart. It's the word for bend. The natural bent goes this way. And he says, God, bend me towards you. All right. So I'm a terrible golfer. Terrible. I'll golf with you because I enjoy it. I go like once every three years. Um, But I'm terrible. Uh, I grew up playing ice hockey, which is a world's greatest sport. If you've never watched a game, you should go watch a game. Um, But ice hockey has a similar motion to golfing, except ice hockey ruins golfers, okay? So in ice hockey, you pull through your shot. In golf, you just let it naturally flow. So what do I do? I pull through my shot, and guess what happens? I am literally like a fairway and a half over every time, right? My natural bend is the ball is crushed and then just And then I spend the next five shots getting it back over to my side, right? Because my natural bent is way, way where it should not be. And I need somebody to bend my shot. If you know how to bend a shot, let me know. We can go meet up. You can help me out. 
because my natural bent is so far over. In the world of golf, we laugh. In the real life, it's not funny, is it? Because our natural bent goes after things that just destroy our lives, destroy the lives of those around us, and it leads us to brokenness and misery because the natural bent of our heart is so far from what God says is good for our our hearts, souls, and eternity. And so the psalmist is pleading with God, God, I know my natural bent. Would you change it? Can I ask you this morning, do you even know your bent? I literally think that we're so blind to our sin sometimes we don't even know our bent. We don't even know that we're just pathetically crooked. And so we never cry out to God, God, would you, would you change how I'm naturally bent? And so we are clueless to how evil we really are because to us it's just normal. It's like that person that has a deformed limb and they've learned to live with their deformity because it's what you do, right? When, you, when something doesn't work, your body compensates and you learn how to use it. But wouldn't it be great to say, hey, do you want, do you want your arm or leg fixed? No, I'm good. Well, your life could be improved. No, I'm good. Well, of course not. You say, absolutely, if there's a cure, I want it. Well, before we can even say, God, would you change me? We must, we must recognize that, that we have a, a limb that's terribly out of joint. And we need God to bend us back. The, the, this, this is like a blacksmith pounding hot metal. If you ever tried that, it doesn't happen in one hit. Right? You heat it up and you beat it over and over and over to bend it back saying, God, do what it takes to bend me back. Look at what he says next. Not only does he say bend it back in verse 36, he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Here, the literal translation is, make my eyes pass by something. Isn't that cool? Make my eyes pass by it. So he's not saying the same thing as before. The before was bend me. Now he's saying, if I could paraphrase it, God, I live in a world that is vying for my attention through my eye gate. And it's all around me to run from you. Would you help me to live in this world and pass by evil and not even notice it? Because everywhere I turn, it's screaming at me. Have you ever feel that way? You're literally like, I can't go anywhere. Like, it's not just sexual lust. It's stuff lust. It's, 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 uh, it's covetousness. It's discontentment. And it comes through our eyes. And he says, God, help me to live in this world, but not be of this world. Help me to pass by it in such a way that not that I'm ignorant to sin, but that it doesn't phase me. It doesn't draw me in. We're so often like the foolish fish who sees the lure in the water and, and you, you know that there's a hook there but you think that this time it won't get you. And so you go after it anyway. And he says, Lord, don't, don't let me see it. Make me pass by it. So this reality that worthless, worthless things surround us, but grace enables us to live for God in a world that's full of evil. And so he says, Lord, would you, would you put a blinder over my eyes so that I can walk with you? And brothers and sisters, this is where we don't let go and let God. You don't watch garbage for entertainment and say, oh God, blind my eyes right now. You say, I'm not doing that because I want to walk with you. This is not a prayer of of like, okay, Lord, I'm going to live my life wherever I want. And would you please protect me? What foolishness. This is a, Lord, I want to walk with you. And I'm going to guard my heart from all forms of evil. But as I do that, would you guard me? You know, there have been times in my life where I'm not pursuing sin and I might be out driving somewhere in a store and sinful temptation hits me. Ever have that? You're just like, it's like a truck, just boom. And you're like, where'd that come from? I was just minding my business. And, and all of a sudden sin just hit me like a truck. And then you're like in this fight, do I go after my sin or do I obey God? And that moment you're saying, Lord, help this sin pass by me. I'm not going to go. Th- I'm not going to go through with it. I'm, I'm not going to follow my sin. This isn't a passive theology. This is an aggressive. I'm going to walk with God, but God, as I walk with you, would you please help me? Because it is everywhere, and it's not going anywhere until we're with Jesus. So we desperately need God to shield us from the onslaught of sin that enters through our eye gate. 
And Spurgeon said, I cannot love what I do not look at. Isn't that good? I can't love what I don't look at. And that's just true for us, isn't it? So if it's for you, if you realize, wow, after this morning, Father, my selfish gain is football. When football's on, I am a jerk to my family. I am ungodly. I yell and scream at the television. Guess what? Then you should care enough to say, God, I'm done for right now. That's crazy. Our pastor just said, don't watch football. No, I said, walk with Jesus. And there might, be, there might be something in your life that's keeping you from Jesus. And it can be as silly as football. Or it could be, oh man, my phone is controlling me. Like, I just, I can't put it down. The average American checks their phone every seven seconds. That's unbelievable. That's an idol. And you may need to just say, you know what? I don't need a smartphone. I'll take a dumb phone. Okay? Because I can't walk with Jesus. I can't have my devotions. I can't quiet my soul before God. I can't pray. So I need to get rid of it to walk with Jesus. Are you seeing what he's doing here? And I love what God does. He doesn't make sin so narrow that we can say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. I'm good. <laughs> it's Pastor Phil's problem. He says worthless gain or selfish gain, worthless things. And that, that net is a catch-all that all of us are going to find something there that says, all right, where do you fit? Where's your struggle? Where do you need to say, God, I need to die to sin. Would you bend my heart? Would you guard my eye gate? And so we must believe that we're broken if we're ever going to run to God and say, help me. Help me walk with you. Well, let's see what he goes on and says in verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life. Here we see that the necessity of believing God. We must actually believe God. Like believe him so much that when you go to the bank and you know you have money in your account and you go to, the, you go to the, let's say, a, 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 an ATM machine, you put your card in and you enter your PIN number, you know money's coming out. Now, it might be different if you're like, I don't know what's in there today. So we're just going to see what happens. That's not what we're talking about. This is like, I've got a thousand bucks. I need 20. Go in, get it. And you walk in and you say, your machine's broken. If I don't get my money, it's not my fault. I know it's in there. I just checked. Your machine's broken. Fix it. All right? We actually need to believe God. Like, not just like, ah, maybe. God, maybe you'll. No, like, God. Your word is true. I'm taking it to the bank and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to die to sin and believe that you are right because the insanity of sin is just that. It's insane. Sin makes us insane. We do things that we know are illogical and foolish. Like have you ever done something that you look back on and you're like, that was just dumb. I mean, looking you, as a year later, a day later, an hour later, you're like, I can tell you that was the dumbest thing I ever did. That was absolute foolishness. But in the moment, I, it felt good. Everybody was doing it. I did it. Right? The insanity of sin. And in that insanity, we're tempted to doubt if God's word is true, if God will be true to his promises, if God will actually satisfy our souls. And so we go after the, the, the insane lie that we'll be happy full of joy and no real living apart from God. But the reality is one that we all know well, misery, shame, guilt, and just hit repeat over and over and over. Misery, shame, guilt, misery, shame, guilt, time and time again, apart from God and his grace. <laughs> we see here the, the truth of scripture, God alone gives life. This is again, like last week, the abundant life Jesus promises. This is not just long life and happiness, okay? This isn't like, hey, you obey God, long life. You obey God. No, this is like, this, the, the idea of life here is, is rich, satisfying, joy-filled life. Maybe, maybe you have family or in your work context, people know you're a Christian and they think you're missing out on everything. Anybody ever told that because you're a Christian? You're just missing out. You know, I look at that and I'm like, I think, you're, I think you're dead wrong. I think actually my life is amazing because God is good. And you know what? You know what? You're right. My life stinks when I run from God. I'll give you that. When I go my own way, life stinks. But when I walk with him, there's just, even if there's things that I don't understand, trials that hit me, it's like, God, you're good. And there's goodness in following you. Al Mohler a great writer and theologian of our time says, 
that walking with God produces human flourishing. Human flourishing. You want to you flourish in your humanity? Walk with God. You want to know the goodness of life? Walk with God. He says here, turn my eyes, incline my heart, give me life. And brothers and sisters, we must believe God and say, God, I, I am so convinced you are right and true that even when I'm tempted to go my own way, even when I don't see it, I'll follow you. So maybe that means, God, I'm going to do what's right financially because I, and I don't see how the money's going to come when I could cheat a little bit and make it work, but I'm not going to because your plan is right and good. God, my, my marriage is less than satisfying right now and I'm tempted to do something sinful because of that, but I'm not going to because I believe you to be right and good. Like my children are a mess and I think I'm following you, God. I'm gonna walk with you. I'm gonna trust you because your plan is right and good. Do you see that? This is not some happy-go-lucky theology that everything just works out perfectly. This is when life is hard, like last week's sermon. When life, really, you don't know what's going on. And you go, God, I know you're good. And I know you give life. So I'm gonna follow you. And I'm gonna trust you. So we believe God. We take him at his word. Do you embrace your brokenness this morning? Because the good news is, if you do, you run to a God who loves to care for broken people. That's the goodness of Christianity. The goodness of Christianity is not perfect people whom God helps out. There's a cult that believes that. We don't believe that. We believe in a God who says, you know what? Because of your sin, you're broken. But I am, I am good and run to me. All you who are heavy laden and I will what? I'll give you rest. I will care for you. I will delight in you. Zechariah says, the God who cares for us is the one who delights over you with loud singing. That's his perspective on his children. So he cares for the broken. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church who delights in brokenness because we can run to a God of all grace. And just practically this morning, this is totally off my notes, okay? Practically, if we're a church that delight in brokenness because of the gospel, guess what? We'll be a church that loves one another. We'll be a church that can be open because guess what? I don't expect perfection out of you and you shouldn't expect it out of me because this isn't a church of perfect people. That doesn't happen. It's a church of broken people. So when you come in on Sunday morning and say, oh man, it's been a hard day and here's what's happened. It's not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened to you. It's never happened to me before. No way. It's like, hey, can we pray together? Let's cry out to our God who, who cares for broken people. And it might be your moment to be broken. It might be my moment to be broken. But it's, we all live there. Right? We, just, we come in and out of feeling less broken sometimes. Or maybe for you, you just live in a state of brokenness. And if you've never been there, then you're lying to yourself. You really are. And we're good at lying to ourselves. Just masking it. Putting more makeup on the problem. And maybe we should just say, God, I'm broken. And we, we gather here, folks, to say, Lord, we're broken together. We need Jesus. That's it. We need a Savior who loves us. And so this should not, and by God's grace, ever be a place where we gather to be pretty people. We gather with, as broken people who say, we readily admit we don't have it all together. Oh, but we have a God who does. And so we can go to him. We can go to him together. And we can say, Lord, would you help us? We don't know the answers, but you do, so help us. So brothers and sisters, may we embrace our brokenness and run to a God who cares for us. Well, we've got to finish this, this section. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Now, on this third point, as we finish, I want to remind you that theology matters. Okay, theology Real simple definition, what you think about God. That's it. That's um, J.F. Packer. He says, everybody's a theologian. Yeah. Some of us are bad ones, but we're all theologians. Because to be a theologian is simply to think about God. So an atheist is a theologian. They have thoughts about God, even if they're wrong thoughts. We as Christians, we have thoughts about God. They may be wrong thoughts, but we all are theologians in our own respect. So theology matters. Because, like we talked about last week, how you think will always affect how you live. And how you think about God will dictate everything in your life. Truly. Everything in your life. 
you know, Americans don't understand religious war. Okay, so we don't understand the Middle Eastern conflict. We don't. It's been around for a thousand years. It's not political. It's not dictatorial. It's not governmental. What is it? It's religious. That's all it is. So when you actually believe that the only guaranteed way to get to your, your state of heaven is to blow yourself up, what do you think people are going to do? Isn't that what the Catholic Church did with the Crusades? The way to guarantee heaven was to go on a crusade? So what do people do? They do atrocious things in the name of religion. Are you tracking here? So like when you actually believe something about your, your deity, whoever that is, it's going to have great implications on your life, it can have horrific infl- implications on your life. And the true is same for Christians. If your thoughts about God are not true thoughts about God, you might be led down a road of, I hate that God. How dare he did that to me? Right? Because your thoughts about God are not right thoughts about God. So theology matters. Don't check out here because it's really good for us to look at this word righteousness. This is one of those words that when you see it in the scriptures, it should leap off the page and you should ask questions about it and say, what does it mean? And understand it in a biblical context because it's so key. The point of this morning's sermon, if you remember, was we're not righteous. He's already said that in seven verses. By nature of saying, God, teach me. God, incline. God, guard me from sin. He's admitting, I'm not righteous. That's the whole point. I'm not righteous. And he finishes this section with the word righteous, which is going to give us a clue of where he's going. And here we see the goodness of God's righteousness. The goodness of God's righteousness. So here he says, in your righteousness, give me life. We've seen the request for life over and over. The idea of abundant life and knowing God. But the foundation for this request is what is different here. He says, do it in accordance with your righteousness. So clearly, he doesn't believe he's righteous, right? He's like, God, you've got something I don't have. So do something for me based on your character, not mine. This is good for us to hear because how often do we talk to God in a way that says, God, I've done so much for you. Would you please just help me today? God, I mean, I've read my Bible today. I mean, isn't that the Christian lucky rabbit's foot? I rubbed it today. I did, I did what I'm supposed to do today. Come on, God. Help me out here. God, I just evangelized my neighbor and now this happened to me? Thanks a lot. I mean, let's be honest. We have these little thoughts that come in. Like, God, I did something good for you. You shouldn't do that to me. And that's not what he's doing here. He's not saying, hey God, I'm I'm writing a chapter in the Bible. Be good to me. No. He's saying, he's admitting, God, I am not righteous. And I need the one who is. So we must readily acknowledge that every moment of our lives, we're not righteous, and that there is a God who is in heaven, and he alone makes sinners righteous through Jesus. And this is what I love about Old Testament theology, is that we see traces of the Messiah everywhere. The Messiah was what they were looking for. We call him Jesus. They call him the Messiah. They were looking for the one who would what? atone for sins. They knew it. That's why they did sacrifices all the time. They knew the sacrifices weren't enough. You know why? Because they did them all the time. So they knew they wore out. I've got to do them again and again and again. But there's one coming. When he comes, he's going to atone. He's going to bring righteousness. And so they, they had a theology of Messiah and it shows up here in Psalm 11940. This God makes sinners righteous. It's the very heart of the gospel. Now, take your Bible, hold your finger in Psalm 119, and jump over to Romans 1:16. A verse that is known well, but not the second, not the verse after it. Listen to what he says. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, what is it? The gospel from verse 16, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The greatest demonstration of the righteousness of God was the crushing of Jesus because it proved that nobody can be righteous but God alone. Gospel proved 
the righteousness of God like nothing in all of history. This was the message of the cross that in order for sinners like us to get to God, it couldn't be on our performance. It had to be God's performance alone. So God performs in your place. This goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Remember this crazy story of God making the covenant with Abraham? He cuts the animal in half. Weird. Blood all over the ground. Abraham falls asleep. What does God do? He makes a covenant with himself by walking through the split animal. Do you know why they walk through the split animal? Because it was a picture of if one of you breaks the covenant, so will happen to you. That was why they walked through death. So it was, we make a promise. Pastor Doug and I make a promise. This is a covenantal promise. We kill something. We, tra- we tramp through the blood together, and we have made a covenant. And if he breaks it, he shall die. If I break it, I shall die. What did God do with Abraham? Puts him to sleep, and Abraham sees God do what? Walk through the cut in half animal, which, again, this is 4,000 years ago, okay? I know this is weird for us today. He walks through it to say, Abraham, I'm in a covenant with me because if I covenant with you, you can't do it. You can't hold your end of the bargain, buddy. You're going to be a failure because you're broken. That picture's all the way back in Genesis 12 and 15. We get to the cross and what does he say? The God of righteousness reveals that it's not up to you. You couldn't be part of the equation. You didn't do half and God do half. He did it all. He displayed his righteousness for all to see. It was this beacon that just shines and says, God is righteous. And he actually can make sinners righteous. And so here the psalmist, he knows of that. But you know what's cool is we actually know more than he does, according to 2 Peter 1. He wrote of things that he longed to look in, but we now see because we're this side of the cross. And so he knew of a Messiah, but he didn't know how he would die. He didn't know his name. He didn't know what he would do. We know all of that. And so we can read this and say, hallelujah, the God of righteousness gives life. We don't run in fear and terror of this God. We can run to this God and say, oh, you alone are righteous. And would you make me righteous? What I love about this is that we're, we're dealing with a section of scripture that's calling us to live for God, isn't it? I mean, that's the whole point. Walk with God, people. Love God and walk with him. And then he says, give me life according to your righteousness. Because it's not up to me. Even if I tried my hardest and did my best, I can't be righteous. Oh, but God, you are. And not only do you forgive rebellious sinners, but you make them righteous. Like I've said before, and I'll say a thousand times, forgiveness is not enough because forgiven sinners are still sinners. Forgiven murderers are still murderers, right? But righteous people is what God is looking for. So he forgives you and then he gives you righteousness. And that's what the psalmist says. God, don't just forgive me, but make me righteous. Oh, I am living for you, but it's not enough. Would you give me righteousness and give me life? This heartbeat of Psalm 119, 33 to 40 is that we're broken. We need God's help to know God. We need God to bend our hearts to him. And in all of that, as we are holding on to that, we're crying out, Lord, give me righteousness. Man, I need you. I am not sufficient for the task. I cannot please God on my own. Make me righteous. And the beautiful thing about grace is that God is transforming sinners all the time, right? He is forgiving and granting righteousness. He doesn't leave us the way we are, but he transforms us continually. And here, very quickly, the righteousness that he gives you based on his son is the positional standing you have before God. You are his child based on Jesus' righteousness. And then it's your privilege to live for him. That's the point. So don't think for a moment that, well, if I do all that I'm supposed to, God will love me more. Oh no, he could never love you more and never love you less than he does in his son. That's the righteousness he gave you in Jesus. But if you know that righteousness, oh, you will live for him, which is practical righteousness, living for the glory of God. And so one more quote by Charles Spurgeon as we finish. He said, we are in a state of complicated ruin. Aren't we? That brokenness. I mean, we're complicated. (laughs) 
We're not all the same. Your, your, your story of brokenness is different than my story of brokenness. We're in a state of complicated ruin from which nothing but manifold grace can deliver us. That grace is not monodimensional. It's not grace for this person's problems, but not this one's. It's manifold and abundant. God meets you in your state of complicated ruin and he gives abundant grace. And so brothers and sisters, maybe this morning embrace that we're not righteous, but we have a God who is and we can run to him and he delights in his own. Let's pray together. Father, would you impress your word deep on our souls this morning? May these things that we've heard be thought over and over in our minds today and this week, and may it move us to admit, firmly admit that we are broken and there is a God who loves to care by his grace for broken people such as we are. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for ministering to our souls by it. You are good. And we praise your name this morning. And in Christ's name, amen.